everybody. I hope you're uh, excited to be here to worship God this morning. And I'm very excited to speak on the topic of uh, the faith of our founding fathers. You know, we celebrated July 4th last week, but we're not done celebrating uh, our, our nation, the privilege that we have to live in this country. And maybe some of you don't appreciate enough because you haven't gotten outside of this country to appreciate what we have. But I would encourage you to do that someday, even you young people. You don't realize what we have here in this country, the freedoms that we have. To think about this morning, we can worship God, we can proclaim the name of Jesus, of Jehovah, in freedom, and we don't have to worry about the police coming in and saying, enough, and taking me to jail. We don't have to worry about that. And that's a blessing. Uh, there, there aren't, you know, all these places that have that privilege. Uh, and, and we're very thankful, but because of our founding fathers, we have that privilege and that blessing. And I appreciate, I just want to echo what Josh shared last week. What a tremendous message. He, he set the bar for me uh, this week in our part two series. Uh, and we're going to talk about more of the same, maybe not the individuals, but the history and then some of the individuals. But let me begin by saying... You will not hear this information in schools or on the History Channel. And there's a reason for that. We live in a time where people are revising, and it's called revisionist history. Faith is being pulled out of our history books. The idea of God and who He is and Jesus and this most precious of all books is being de-emphasized in our society. But that's why we come to church, so we can get the truth. 
about what really happened. You know, you can take and revise history, but you can't change things that are written in history by our founding fathers. And you can't change certain items that we have. Anybody got a dollar bill or any monetary? There, there's something written on that, and it was written in the very beginning when they started printing money in the United States of America. It's a phrase. And they have petitioned to remove it. But you can't remove that. In God we trust. And that's our proclamation as a church. If you're visiting here with us today, uh, I, I want to encourage you that uh, you're going to hear some things that may encourage your faith about our nation, how it was built, what it was built upon. And the 56 men that wrote and signed the Declaration of Independence. And some of the men that wrote also the Constitution of the United States, these documents to date still stand as inspired documents. They stand apart from all other government documents in history as it pertains to men's freedom and how to govern righteously, justly, there's a reason for that. And that's what we're going to see today. How did they come upon such inspiration? Uh, many will say that in, in textbooks today, you'll hear the words uh, that our, our founding fathers, they uh, had a strong faith in God, but in textbooks, they will only refer to them as what? Deists. Deists. In the California history of the United States of America, they're referred to our founding fathers as deists. Now that's a contradiction. And I'm going to explain that later. They were not deists. They were believers in Jesus Christ. And they were believers in the Bible. And 54 of the 56 were very committed and devout Christians. Two of them believed in the Scriptures, believed in God, but they weren't as devout. But some of the men who penned it and were instrumental, uh, they were very devout, very devoted. And you're going to hear some of that today. But the textbooks refer to them as deists. And not only that, uh, they were men of great faith, but far from perfect. And then, you know, media today takes a, a very, you know, they, they labor a lot to... to to find people's faults. These men were men of faith, but they were far from perfect. But we're going to look at their positive attributes today. But if you've noticed in the media, some of these journalists, they're not willing to put themselves on the line and be scrutinized, or some of their friends. Uh, it's, a, it's a double standard. But anybody who stands up for God, man, they're going after Him with everything. And that's what happened to our founding fathers. And as I shared, you won't hear this today, what you hear today in the History Channel or Secular Books. But if you do some investigating about the faith of our founding fathers, you're going to find a lot of information about things that they wrote. You know, they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have Facebook back then. So what did they spend a lot of time, these particular men, doing? They wrote a lot. They wrote a lot of books and they wrote a lot of information. They wrote letters. They didn't write emails. They didn't tweet. They wrote letters by hand, and a lot of those letters have been preserved. And so you can hear what comes out 
and their convictions about their faith and their devotion to God. As we continue to keep moving, uh, Psalm 33, verse 12. This was their conviction. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people He chose for His inheritance. Something happened to these men as they began to talk about forming a nation and declaring independence from the empire of England. And it was one of the most powerful empires in the world. Unparalleled navy, unparalleled army. You've got to think twice about going against that kind of empire and saying, you know, we're going to rebel against you. Because there is going to be a very high price to pay. But the reason why they were willing to do it is because they were inspired. They were inspired that God was moving them to form a nation that hadn't been formed like this ever. In His name. And we're going to see that in different quotes that we hear today. And, you know, today we truly have a secular government. But it was a government built on Judeo-Christian ethics. Indisputable, and we're going to see that today. The Founding Fathers believed in the God of Abraham, because they talk about it, the God of Isaac and Jacob. They didn't call Him a God or Creator. They called Him Father, Jehovah, and they called Him Lord. These men who founded our nation. A deist doesn't do this. That's my clarification with the textbooks and a lot of historians who think they were deists. Let's get the definition of a, of a deist or deism. Deism is the belief in the existence of a God by or through reason. The belief in a God or gods who set the universe in motion, then ceased to interact with it. Meaning it was hands off. Now, I'm going to show you today that these men were not deists. In fact, in the initial meetings of the, of the, of the government, they prayed and they, they cried out to God. They read Psalms. They, they asked God to help them in this pursuit of freedom. And we read on, then ceased to interact with it. The religious philosophy and movement became prominent in England, France, and the United States in the 17th and 18th century. Based on the writing of our founding fathers, they were not deists. Because they had a very deep conviction that God was intervening, God was working, and God was blessing. And I'll just go ahead and confess my faith today. It's unexplainable how a a group of colonies, 13 in all, with no navy, no army, and no truly organized government yet, could rebel and beat the most powerful empire in the world. There's no other way to explain that. Let me give you a parallel. The last state in our United States, which is it? Hawaii. Correct. I want you to imagine Hawaii declaring this week 
independence from the United States of America, we don't want to be a state anymore. In fact, we defied you. We weren't going to, we weren't going to pay our taxes. We rebel against the most powerful nation in the world. You know, we surround Hawaii with our boats, planes flying over. I mean, it, it, you know, that's what it was. When these men sat together, it was treason. It was a penalty punishable by hanging and death. It wasn't a little thing that they were about to do. And the odds that they could do this were improbable. Little Hawaii. A beautiful place. But, uh, you know, today we're going to look at some, some different histories. Arguments arise today about our founding fathers, whether they were men of faith or men of enlightenment. Uh, a doctrine of secular humanism that's getting circulated a lot today in our age. And let me say this. What's the purpose of our lesson today? Is it a history lesson? Yes, in some ways it is. But it's also to reaffirm our conviction about how important faith is in building a life, building a family, building a marriage, building a community. Without faith, it will not go well. There may be some positive attributes, but a lot of what we have today in our, in our society, we take it for granted, but it's based on what was built in the beginning. On these non-enlightened men, they were inspired. They were inspired. They had three ingredients that I believe every man should have. Number one, faith. Number one, faith. They had a deep faith in God. And many of them had a deep relationship with God. They talked to Him, listened to Him on a daily basis. You're going to hear about John Adams and his quiet times. He shares about it with his son. And then they had vision, a spiritual vision. They believed that God was using them to build this nation. They didn't believe it was a coincidence. It wasn't a humanistic revolution. It was something that they felt called by God to do this. They were thinking forward about their children and their children's children and what, was, what this nation would create for people, a refuge. And what's the word? Freedom. Not to abuse it, but to use it for good. And then the last thing that they had, they had faith, they had vision, and then they had truth. And we're going to hear about a, a, a gentleman by the name of William Blackstone. He was uh, one of the men, and the, they have a statue of him in the in the court of uh, uh, the judiciary courts in the United States uh, Capitol. Uh, a lot of writings about him. He was used as one of the premier uh, people that that formed a doctrine about building laws and having laws. It's interesting to hear what he writes. But they believed in the Word of God as a guide for all things, how to govern men. There was a conviction about the Bible. These are the elements that we need today, that you need today. It's my conviction. If you want to build your life. You know, what we heard this morning about the preteen camp, and I want to encourage you parents, don't let the lamp go out the rest of the year and the remainder of the year. 
Make sure you pray with your children. Make sure you continue to have devotionals with your children. Because they're not going to get faith from anywhere else except in the home and in Kingdom Kids and in their classes. And in Kingdom Kids and their classes, I'm sorry to say, it's not enough to combat and compete with the influence of our world. Television and media. Faithless. Godless. And we need to balance that out. Today, with our our, our times with our family. Now, let's begin our our lesson. Anybody recognize this? What's this building? It's the United States Capitol building. It's uh, incredible. That dome, you know what it's called? Anybody? Anybody? The Rotunda. This is an impressive building. And it's kind of the symbol of our nation. And there's a lot of patriotism, but it's interesting what's inside of this rotunda. And you can change the history books and tweak them all you want, but you can't change what's inside there. And there's a message, there's lots of messages about our nation inside the rotunda. Many uh, fact, uh, fun fact, as they call them. You can take the, uh, the Statue of Liberty, put it inside the rotunda, and there's still 30 feet to spare. It's an impressive building. Had the opportunity a few years to go to walk around inside. Uh, and, and it is an inspiration, but they, they really wanted uh, to, to say something. Now, inside this rotunda, the actual dome inside, there are paintings in the rotunda. And it's interesting, even some history, another fun fact is, the early years while the United States Capitol was being built, for several years, uh, they used the, the Capitol rotunda for worship services. They would have two services in the morning and two in the afternoon. And they also used the Treasury Department building because they hadn't got to the point where they built church buildings yet in the city of Washington. So they would hold church services in the rotunda in the Capitol building and also in the Treasury Department. So much for separation of church and state. (laughs) Fun fact. Now the paintings in the main room contain a history of the faith of our founding fathers and the conviction. You know, what was this all about? Uh, we've got several, the, the Pilgrim's Thanksgiving and Prayer Meeting, and then the First Continental Congress. I'm going to show you these images, hope you'll be able to see them. This is the first one that's in there. It's, these are 14 by 20 oil paintings. They're enormous. They're impressive. But they will not be taken down. They're part of that structure. This is the, one of the pictures there, and it's the... Uh, It depicts our history of the colonization of the United States. It's Christopher Columbus as he arrived here in the Americas. First thing he did, and and there's a little bit of a description as he's looking up. The first thing, and he he, uh, also journals what they did when they arrived. First thing they did, they had a prayer meeting and they had a service. That was the conviction. He also writes in his journal, Christopher Columbus, that he was inspired by the Spirit of God to find this new land. Now, there was a mistake because he thought he was going to find the other side of Asia. 
But you know, God will use the error of man as he will use the error of sermons sometimes. And he'll work it all out. I believe that. But this is one of the pictures of, uh, in the rotunda of him lifting his eyes up to God in the prayer service that they had upon arrival. What's that tell you? And uh, there, there's another picture in there. If you could help me out. with, There it is. Now, this is the, the Pilgrim's Thanksgiving prayer meeting. This is also another one of these huge paintings. Now, I don't know if you can see it. There's a big book right there. Uh, if you get closer to the painting, you will see something. It's a Geneva Bible. In the history of a Geneva Bible, these Bibles were outlawed by governments and by church hierarchies. Why? Because it was a Bible for common man. Kind of like our New Living Version that we have. Or our New International Version. It's important because it's right at the center and they were celebrating a prayer meeting. And when we celebrate Thanksgiving, that was the point of it. To give thanks to who for what we have. To God. And what's the reference point? The Bible. And the Bible needs to be in the hands of all men so they can read it and so they can know God for themselves. And so that, that's there and it's clearly portraying spiritual, a spiritual base to our colonization. Prayer, reading of the Bible. And a Bible available to all. One of the things that is uh, one of the, 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 the complaints or one of the uh, I forget the word that they used. There was 27 things that they declared against the Empire of England in protest for the reason for the, the independence from them. One of them is they were not allowing them to receive Bibles in the new colonies. They were limited. And one of the first things that they, they did after signing the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution is they formed the American society, the biblical society. And they wrote it into law that they needed to import and get 20,000 Bibles to be distributed throughout the colonies. There was a need for the Bible. And the, the English did not want the colonies to have Bibles because they knew it was dangerous. Men would be inspired to do things for God if they had Bibles. So, it doesn't end there. There's also a portrait of the baptism of Pocahontas. Why would you have a baptism picture in the rotunda of the United States Capitol? Again, the spiritual conviction of our founding fathers. And some of these paintings were done in the 1800s, not that long ago. But they had a base. We believe in God. We believe in prayer. And we're going to see more of that. Uh, next, Adrian, the slide is. All right, now this is, the, uh, this is a portrait, also one of the paintings of the, uh, of the uh, Continental Congress that met. One of the first. Now it's important. You might not be able to see it, but you see those flags in the back, in the back wall? Those, this is an actual portrait of a meeting room where they held the signing and the revision of the Declaration of Independence. Those are not American flags. Those are British flags. There's a drum up there, and there's a couple of trumpets and swords in that back 
uh, in that back wall hanging. Those were captured when Ethan Allen and his, his partner uh, came and conquered one of the English forts. So they hung this on the wall. But it's interesting, the history. When uh, Ethan Allen, we know him for the furniture store, but <laughs> let me tell you, he did a lot more than build furniture. He's one of the most uh, wealthy men in the beginning of our nation. And I'm going to share a little bit about he mortgaged every bit of property that he had to begin this nation. He was one of the wealthiest men in the 56. He mortgaged everything. He died penniless because they couldn't get back the money from the mortgages in time. He died a poor man for our nation. What would, what would incline a man to do that? A deep faith and a deep conviction that God was leading him. But anyways, in his earlier days, he conquered and they took this fort. And he went to the British officer and he says, We proclaim this fort. And we take it over. And the officer goes, In whose name? History states that he says, In the name of Jehovah God. And the Continental Congress. Now, that, there's a conviction there. These guys weren't doing things for a government. They were doing, they believed this was in the name of God. This whole revolution, that was their conviction. First, God. Another fun fact. Uh, you know, and, and in this meeting, this is a portrait. I, I want to share a little bit more about this because it's significant. The very first. The very first meeting of this Continental Congress, what they did is interesting. They got together for the very first time, and it was actually in 1774 when they first met. June of 1774, two years before they did the actual signing. It was the first meeting they'd ever had. You know what they did in that first meeting? Any idea? They began with prayer. For three hours. Do you think this was an unspiritual beginning? They realized the depth and width of what they were doing and they wanted God to inspire and intervene and protect and guide them. John Adams wrote a letter to his wife describing this first meeting. I want you to listen. When the Congress first met, Mr. Cushing made a motion that it should be open with prayer. It was opposed by one or two because they were so divided about uh, in religious sentiments. Some were Episcopalians, some Quakers, some Anabaptists, some Presbyterians, and some Congregationalists that could not agree in the same act of worship. Mr. Samuel Adams rose and said, He is not a bigot and could hear a prayer from a gentleman of piety and virtue who was the, the same time and friend, a friend of this country. He was a stranger in Philadelphia, but had heard Mr. Douche, Duche, an Episcopalian clergyman, might desire to read a prayer in the Congress tomorrow. And Mr. Randolph, our president, waited on Mr. Duche and received an answer from his 
that if his health permitted, he would certainly would. And then he, he talks about uh, how that meeting went. Because at first there was disagreement, but they all decided, you know what? Let's put our differences aside and let's, let's get unified. And it doesn't matter. And let's pray. According to the next morning, he appeared with his clerk and his uh, officials. And he read the, the seventh day of September, which is, he also read the 31st Psalm. And we're going to, I want us to read the Psalm because I want you to hear what they read that day, that first meeting of the Congressional Congress. And he says here to his wife, you must, you must remember that this was the first morning after we heard the horrific, the horrible rumor of the colonnade or the, can, the cannonade of Boston, meaning Boston had been attacked and defeated by the British. I never saw a greater effect produced upon an audience. It seemed as if heaven had ordained that the psalm would be read that morning. It is an excellent effect upon everyone here. I must beg you to read the psalm. This is him saying this to his wife. After this, Mr. Duchesne unexpected, unexpectedly to everybody struck out into an experienced prayer which filled the bosoms of every man present. I must confess I've never, I never hear a better, I've never heard of a better prayer than the one so pronounced. Episcopalian he is. Dr. Cooper himself never prayed with such fervor. So there were several men pray, that prayed. But I want you to hear the prayer, because it's wrote, it, it, they wrote it down, the prayer of this minister of the first meeting of the, the Continental Congress. It's written by Mr. Duchesne. O Lord, of, o Lord, our Heavenly Father, mighty and high King of kings and Lord of lords, who dost from now throne behold all the dwellers of earth and reignest with power and supreme, uncontrolled over all kingdoms, empires, and governments. Look down in mercy, we beseech thee, on these our American states who have fled to thee from the rod of the oppressor and thrown themselves on thy gracious protection, desiring to henceforth dependent only on Thee. To Thee they have appealed for the, righteous, the righteousness of their cause. To Thee do they now look upon for the, the countenance and support which Thou alone can give us. Take them, therefore, Heavenly Father, under Thy nurturing care. Give them wisdom, counsel, and valor in the field. Defeat the malicious designs of our cruel adversaries. Convince them of their unrighteousness of their cause. And if they persist in their singular purpose of our own unerring justice, sounding their hearts, constrain them to drop weapons of war for their unnerved hands in the battlefield that day. Be thou present, O God of wisdom, and direct the counsels of this honorable assembly. Enable them to settle on things best and surrest foundations, that the scene of blood may be speedily closed, in order that harmony and peace may be effectually restored, and truth and justice Religion and piety prevail, flourish among the people. Preserve health of their bodies 
and vigor in their minds shower down on them millions of their represents such temporal blessings thou sees in expeditions. And then he closes, all this we ask and through the merits of Jesus Christ, thy Son and our Savior. Do not sound like the words of deists. This was the one of the prayers in the three-hour prayer meeting of the very first. Now, you're not going to hear this again. They're not going to show it tonight on the History Channel. But this is how our nation got started. Men understood, we need God here. We need Him to bless us and guide us and show us the way. How about you, Dad? Are you humbly on your knees asking God to help you lead your family? How about you, Mom? How about us as a church today? Are we ready to get on our knees and ask God, bless us in our endeavors. Help us to save this community in the East San Gabriel Valley. That's what they did when they started our nation. And John Adams was inspired. He says, my bosom was filled that day when we prayed to God. Let me read you the 31st Psalm because... It's kind of, you get a description of what they were going through and what they were feeling. They were in a tight spot. Psalm 31, a psalm of David. And they were feeling this. In verse 1, it says, In you, O Lord, I have taken. Now, I want you to imagine yourself. Get, get in the room there. There it is. They're in the room, and they read this psalm. Because their lives were on the line. All of them in this room were guilty of treason. And if found, and you'll, you'll hear it if you read about it, many of them were killed, hung. Their wives were raped. Their children, one man in particular of the 56, lost all 13 of his children. And there was a heavy price to pay for our freedom. Verse 1, In you, O Lord, I have taken my refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, the strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Free me from the trap that is set for me. For you are my refuge. In your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, God of truth. I hate those who cling to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your love. For you saw my affliction and knew my anguish. You have not handed me over to the enemy, but have set me free in a spacious place. Be merciful to me, O Lord. I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow and my soul and my body with grief. And it continues. You can read the rest later. This was the spirit in that first meeting in 1774. For three hours, they prayed and read the Bible. All 56 of these men. What's that tell you about the faith of our founding fathers? And they loved God and they needed His help. And they were humble before Him. What's happened to our nation today? 
And it's our responsibility as Christians. If you're visiting here with today and you call yourself a Christian, it's your responsibility to defend faith and not give in to cynicism and secularism. Oh, well, I believe in the, the separation of church and state. Well, yes, this isn't a political message. This is a moral message. A moral message that we must believe and not let the world influence us, but us influenced by our good deeds and our faith, the world. More and more they're telling you what you can't do that's spiritual. And it's very important as these men fought for our rights and gave their blood, we continue in our lesson. As you can tell, I'm very passionate about this. These are things that I'm finding out about our nation's history. I mean, this study has helped me go, wow, this is amazing. We just shared about all of that. All right, now this is a portrait of George Washington tendering his resignation as general of the United States Armies. Why was he resigning? You know, that day they wanted to make him president on the spot. You know what he said? Uh Uh-uh, I won't do it. You know why? Because he didn't want to become a king, just like they did in England. He wanted to stay as far away from that as possible. These men were convinced God is our leader and we have to do this right. And so he tenured his resignation, and before they uh, they could declare him president, he, he sent out a letter. He sent out a letter to the 13 colony legislators. And I want you to hear the closing prayer of George Washington, our first president, in this letter. So you can hear his faith. He closed his letter with a prayer to the 13 colony legislators. I I now make my earnest prayer that God would have you and the state over which you preside in His holy protection that he would incline the hearts of the citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to government, to entertain brotherly affection and love for one another, for their fellow citizens of the United States at large, and particularly for the brethren who have served in the field. And finally, that he, who's he? God and that he would most graciously be pleased to depose on all to do justice, to love mercy, and to demean ourselves with that charity, humility, and pacific temper in the mind that we, in which we're the characteristics of a divine author, our blessed and of our blessed religion. What religion? Christianity. And without a humble imitation of those examples and these things, we can never hope to be a happy nation. What's that tell you about his conviction? We need God. We need God's principles in order for this nation to succeed. My fear is we lose these principles in our nation, we lose the nation. We're about 30 years behind Europe. You know what Europe is? A predominantly 
atheist society. People do not believe in God. Churches are empty. People don't think about God. They're cynical. And they're humanistic. We need to be very careful that we don't allow our society or our children or our children's children to go down that road. But it will require a fight. It will require us going back. If I have any honor to be the, the, the greatest in esteemed respect, sir, you're excellently most obedient and very humble servant. What's that tell you about George Washington, our first president? That's how he closed his letter. We continue. So you're getting the idea? I mean, I could go on all day, but we, we got a kind of a time schedule. I mean, to me, I was up so late last night because it's overwhelming, the information about who these men were. And then you think about what Josh shared last week. The Minutemen. Who knows what the Minutemen were? Can you give me a little help, a little audience participation? Who were the Minutemen? Yes, sir. They were volunteers. What was their commission? Ready to fight and defend in a minute's notice. That's why they were called Minutemen. This statue is in the city of Lexington, in the very center, because there was a very, very famous Minuteman there and in Concord, New England. Do you know that the great majority of Minutemen in the United States Army, you know where they came from? You know who they were? Most of them were deacons in their churches. You know that many captains in the the army of the colonies, they were also deacons, ministers, and church leaders. Because they would take the leadership of the church and automatically, because people were focused on following God and their minister and the direction of their minister, they just take that structure and they go, okay, we got an army right here. This side right here, let's go. Let's go fight. Who are my deacons? Raise your hand. Who are, my, who are my house church leaders? Who are my faith group leaders? Raise your hands. I commissioned you on this day. You are Minutemen. That's what happened. Amazing story, isn't it? A lot of people don't know this, and you're not going to get it on the History Channel, I promise you. But you know, our founding fathers... Of the 56 men, i got to read this to you because it's eye-opening. Who were these men? Five signers were captured by the British as traitors and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons serving in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons captured. i got to share about this story because it's very intense. Hopefully I can find the gentleman's name. Adam Clark, one of the 56. His two sons were in the, serving in the army of the colonies. And they were captured by the British. And they had a prison ship that was stationed in the, the, uh, the harbor of New York. They called it Jersey. had another name. It was called the Hell Ship. They would take prisoners from the colony armies and they would starve them to death, and they would torture them. Two of his sons, of Mr. Abraham Clark, did I say Adam? It's Abraham Clark. 
his two sons, and they were very close to the near the end of the revolution, and it was clear the United States was going to win. And they gave an offer to Abraham Clark and said, if you'll renounce your allegiance to this rebellion, we'll give you your, your son's lives. We'll set him free. And others shared that were around Mr. Abraham Clark, and their hearts were broken as they saw him tortured in his soul over the lives of his sons. His answer was very simply, I decline, no. And he sentenced his two sons to death. Why? Because he believed in the vision. He believed in the call of God for what he had been commissioned to do for this nation. They signed and pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. What kind of men were these? Twenty-four were lawyers and jurists. Eleven were merchants. Nine were farmers and large plantation owners. Men of means. Most of them lost everything in the pursuit. It was not a financial gain, this act of declaring independence from the empire of England. Many of them died in poverty. They were well educated, but they signed the Declaration of Independence knowing full well that their penalty would be death if they were captured. Carter Braxton, a Virginia wealthy planter and trader, saw his ship swept to sea by the British Navy. He sold his home and properties to pay his debt and died in rags. Thomas McKean was so hounded by the British that he was forced to move his family almost constantly. He served in the Congress without pay, and his family was kept in hiding. His, positions were t- his possessions were taken from him, and, his poverty w- and poverty was his reward. Vandals or soldiers looted the properties of Dillery, Hall, Clymer, Walton, Ginwinette, Hayward, Rutledge, and Middleton. The story is long, but these men lost most everything that they had. Some of their wives were raped and killed because of the cause. You know, when we think about July 4th, we like the fireworks. But we don't realize the cost. And if these men didn't have faith, if they didn't have vision, and they didn't have a conviction about truth, truth that comes from the Scriptures, we would not be who we are today, and we would not have what we have. remember. And not only remember, let's imitate. That is our calling. That's the whole point of this message today. Gain faith. Live by your faith. And stand up for your faith. It's not an ideology. It's a conviction. Next, uh, help me with this one, Adrian. Here it is. John 3.16, verse 21. You know, and I want to straighten this out because we've really been talking and 
and focused on being a, a, a faith-centered church. And I want to make sure it's clear. Living a faith-based or faith-centered life is not a better alternative. It is the only alternative to avoid this. John 3, 16 through 21. Whoever believes, let's read the whole part. I just put the verse 19 up there. Let's read the whole section. John 3, 16. So how are you liking your history lesson so far? And I loved it. It's really helped my conviction. And I'm ready to fight now for my faith. Verse 16 says in John 3, For God so loved the world that He gave His, His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. A true believer is saved. But what happens to those who are the majority of our society in the United States today? People are not believers. And the numbers are growing. Remember our study that we did about the truth and the conviction of the truth in our young people today? Faith in God and faith in the Bible is on the slide at an unprecedented rate. Whose fault is that? I believe it's us, parents. We've got to impress upon our children that this is the Word of God. And it's not a better way of living. It's the only way. And if you don't live according to faith, look what Jesus says. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands Condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This was the conviction of our founding fathers. Yet at the same time, they did not believe in forcing everyone to follow Jesus. Because it's not biblical. Biblical Christianity is Jesus taught, I want you to make a choice. I'm not going to force this on you. It's your decision. It's your faith. You must believe. And because of that, they said, we will allow a Muslim to live in this nation unpersecuted. A Buddhist, he will not be persecuted for his faith here. He doesn't believe the right thing and the the correct thing, the truth, but we won't bother him. We believe each man is free to do as he chooses. See, that's Christian teaching. Jesus never forced His teaching on everyone, on anyone. He called people to make a choice. But what a choice it is. And He did not mince words. You will be condemned if you do not believe. But it's your choice. So what we're following is not an alternative lifestyle. But we're a faith-centered church. Isn't that nice? Understand. Believers will be saved. Non-believers will be condemned to hell. There's no other way to say it. That's what our founding fathers believed. And they believed it firmly. Now let's go on and talk about law. Because you know, something's happened to our, our judicial system. Who's this guy right here? It's a big fellow. 
William Blackstone. You ask a lawyer, any lawyers in the house? Ex-lawyers, legal assistants, anybody who knows about law, history of law? Don't be bashful. We love lawyers. Who's William Blackstone? William Blackstone is uh, a judge, but also his writings were very inspirational and, beca and became like the, the, the base for our judicial system here in the United States. I believe there is a statue of him in the United States Capitol. Uh, and let, let me read to you what, was, what his conviction was, Mr. William Blackstone. He was an English jurist in the 18th century and is more famous for his commentaries on the law of England, which embody the tenets of Judeo-Christian theism. According to Blackstone, two foundations for law are nature and revelation through the scriptures. Blackstone believed that the fear of the Lord was the beginning of wisdom and thus taught that God was the source of all laws. This is a guy who set the, the stage and the foundation for the Supreme Court and our judicial system. We've strayed a little bit, haven't we? Where's God? Where's the man that will proclaim all laws originate from this book? That's, that's how our nation was built and what it was built on. So, in closing, as we take the communion, I want us to remember that whether we see it or not, this is God's conviction. Who is Jesus? Ephesians 1, verse 19 through 23. That power is which is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly realm, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be the head over everything everything for the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way right now we're going to take the communion who is jesus it's our conviction jesus is everything jesus is above everything he is the highest that was our founding father's conviction what about us today is that our conviction do we allow Jesus to reign in our lives or is our rebellious spirit that's taken root in our nation caused us to rebel against Jesus? We take the communion today to recommit ourselves to Jesus. They celebrated services in the Capitol and in these, these continental meetings because they wanted to make it clear who leads in their lives, individually. They had a great conviction about that. And before we pray for the communion, I, I want to read this because it's, it's pretty cool about John Adams. He wrote a series of letters to his son. 
on the Bibles, the Bible and its teachings. Now, John Adams was one of the authors, the main instruments in writing the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. He wrote, and this was published in the New York Tribune, in which he stated, I, have, I myself have many years made it a practice to read through the Bible once every year. I have always endeavored to read it with the same spirit and temper in mind which I now recommend to you, that this, with the intention and desire that is, it is contribute to my advancement in wisdom and virtue, my custom is this, to read four or five chapters every morning immediately after rising from my bed. It employs about an hour of my time and it seems to be the most suitable manner in the beginning of the day. Why do you think John Adams wrote his, read his Bible every morning for one hour? To commune with God. He reads the same Bible that we can read today. He needed it. And he needed that guidance. And look what God did with his life. He was the second president of the United States. I want to encourage you also, as you take the communion, make a commitment today that you're going to have a great relationship with God this week. Just this week. Then you let next week worry about next week. Let's just focus on this week. As we remember in July, the independence of our nation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for the privilege that we have to live in a time and an age and a country where we've been given great inspiration. God, thank you for your word that 